Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2022, and may the 4th be with you. Today, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. And in the next half hour or so, we'll take a look at some of the key news stories that have led to these questions being raised today and hopefully provide our, our view on how these topics uh, might impact what you do in international education. And as we do each week, we take the time to uh, spend with you on these news stories, uh, going in-depth into them. Uh, we take our news stories from our uh, uh, newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share, comes out Mondays, 9 a.m. Eastern, uh, direct to your inbox. And also, if you subscribe on LinkedIn, you get it a half hour early on Monday morning. Uh, we, um, I'm dropping some links into the chat so that you have those for future reference. First is the link to our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Uh, then a link to uh, the most recent edition of the newsletter that you can subscribe to through our news through our website. And then the third is the LinkedIn version of that that you can, you're welcome to subscribe to as well. We've got nearly 600 subscribers on the LinkedIn newsletter in the last four weeks and really encouraged by uh, how much broad, more broadly that message is getting out to the international education community. So really glad that you're with us today. Uh, it's an important uh, time and the lead up. Uh, we all are getting ready in international education for what's coming up later this month in Denver with uh, the return of in-person NAFSA. And after three years, it's been since uh, Jul uh, May of 2019 since NAFSA has been in person. Uh, it's going to be great to be back together with thousands of international educators from around the world. And we're looking forward to um, what's to come. And I'm sure everybody's inbox is just flooded with requests from vendors and other service providers, potential university partners that you're looking to connect with or they're looking to connect with you uh, to potentially uh, begin a relationship or enhance an existing one. So I uh, hope that the, the next few few weeks uh, leading up to NAFSA go well for you and that they, uh, the, the conversations you're able to have uh, allow you to spend your time as wisely as possible in that very busy week of NAFSA. So uh, let's get right into our questions. First question of the day, are you asking the right questions in your strategic marketing? And this is a question I know with many of the universities that I, I consult with uh, comes out of um, really identifying what's the goal here. Uh, do you want more international students on campus? Great. Okay. Do you want more diverse countries from where, uh, where international students are, should come from? Okay. That's a different question. Uh, what, uh, who are you targeting with your messaging? Those types of things. So every, um, every institution that I've had the pleasure of consulting with over the years, that's been uh, the, the important starting point. But what I've seen happen, the reality is, uh, very few institutions spend the time before those they bring in consultants to really think about what what their identity is, what they want to be, uh, and it's really uh, kind of a, the questions that get asked. Uh, follow up questions after I ask those initial questions are are ones that you would think would be ones that would be already part of the part of what that uh, what that institution's done. Uh, to uh, the answer to those would have been more readily available, uh, but it, they aren't in many cases. So the what's important is what we have uh, 
what you have on the institutional level is uh, if you're going to uh, going to be outsourcing marketing in any way is know who you are first. And the folks at Inted, I've uh, long respected what uh, Ben Waxman and his team do there uh, in terms of the services they provide to individual institutions. Uh, they're a much bigger shop than uh, I am here at SMIE Consulting, and they, they do some fantastic data work that um, uh, is really impressive in terms of digging in and, and cut really customizing uh, their uh their, uh, their work with individual institutions and not just regurgitating the same plan that, you, they, uh, that uh, a provider might have used with a different uh, institution, just regurgitating, slapping, changing the names and thinking that's going to be uh, get, them, get them through the door and, uh, and get their uh, products bought by the institutions. So really, they do take the time to get to know their clients and uh, they asked the questions. They had a recent post, and that's what's uh, kind of led to this question today about are you asking the right marketing questions, uh, strategic marketing questions before you outsource? But these are also good questions to know, hopefully know the answers to if you're doing things internally and scaling up and uh, going in some new directions. You want to know uh, who you are and what, uh, what, you, what your plans are, uh, what your identity is really. And what those – what um, – what the what that boils down to for for, for purposes of, of this discussion here in terms of as an institution what are you actually um, using as the as as the motivating uh, answers to questions or asking the right questions uh, they uh, inted team boils it down to three key questions to whom do we market whom do we accept and how much do we award them so those are the three essential elements in the admissions funnel at any institution around the world uh, that has uh, gone after domestic students, international students, regardless of where they're from. And what I think the first point is, uh, the first question, and uh, the INTED team really hones in on this one in their work with individual institutions, is that uh, oftentimes way different vendors come in, different providers, different consultants might come in and just provide kind of a cookie cutter approach to things when the reality is every institution has a different identity. Uh, they may sound similar to other institutions, but the realities of who they, who to whom do they market. Now, a further refinement of that question is to whom should we market is uh, probably the additional refinement I would add to that question because that is not the same for every institution because depending on your academic profile, depending on the resources you have, depending on your campus-wide plans for uh, international in, this, in, in this, this particular circumstance, are you marketing to the right uh, students? Uh, and you may have aspirations to, uh, to get into new markets that you're not currently in, so your messaging will need to be different in those markets where you don't have a brand identity. Uh, so knowing uh, those answers uh, to these three questions, to whom do we market, whom do we accept, and how much do we award them? And the second question, to whom do we, whom do we accept? And that is really, um, well, it boils down to what's your admit rate, but it's also who do you want in your class? Uh, obviously, when you market to, uh, you know to whom you want to market, you have a, a particular persona or profile of students uh, you might want to accept, but you're not going to know that academically for every student that you, you um, might be marketing to. But you can, um, you, the next question is, who do you want to admit? 
if you're in a new market, uh, you have obviously standards uh, internationally that you have uh, that uh, you will try and apply evenly to every country. Uh, if you're trying to break into a new market, do you uh, perhaps relax a certain standard uh, on test scores perhaps? If you were still requiring test scores, would you go test optional if there's simply not access in certain markets? Uh, if you're not already test optional, uh, do you, um, uh, and that, that can impact uh, whom you accept uh, in terms of their qualifications that they might have. Uh, in terms of English language proficiency, that's a part of the uh, part of the process for international students. Are you asking, are you making, are you uh, providing a wider range of English proficiency or requirements uh, or options for how students can demonstrate proficiency uh, beyond uh, just the standard uh, English proficiency tests like TOEFL, IELTS, PTE, Academic, uh, Duolingo, and others. Uh, those are the ones that everybody knows, but are you, uh, have, do you have options for alternate ways they can demonstrate proficiency through the uh, secondary education or the college level education they might already have had if it's been fully in English? How are you documenting that? How are you regulating that in terms of, well, students in Cameroon from the English-speaking uh, part of the part of the country, maybe we should uh, exempt them from having to take a TOEFL IELTS or a PTE academic or Duolingo. Uh, maybe uh, for students in Nigeria and Ghana, uh, they've been educated in English from uh, earliest days, uh, and if that's their only language and it's been the language of education, do you waive it there? How about India? That's the big one. Uh, do you waive English proficiency for any in Indian student? Um, that perhaps a little bit more of a more of a gray area there, but uh, do you uh, waive it for the uh, education system that they're studying in? Like for example, if they've been in uh, IGCSEs and A levels, AS levels, A levels. If they've been in IB, do you waive it? Uh, waive waive the English proficiency program requirements. So these are the kinds of questions. If you have answers that will impact whom you want to accept. Uh, beyond just an academic profile. So those are the things that you, you certainly want to consider uh, when you're doing that. I love the way that they, they lay those out within the INTED uh, framework there in the article that um, they're present, they've presented. Uh, they uh, are really asking the kinds of questions because uh, to whom you market also impacts um, the, uh, the competitors, your competitors. Are you trying to uh, uh, compete with certain institutions? Uh, domestically, you might have a certain set of competitors, but internationally, it could be a whole, it should and will be a whole different set of institutions that uh, a student that might be applying to you from China or from India might have diff different institutions in the U.S., but also different institutions around the world that they may also be applying to at the same time. So knowing what your competitors uh, are doing, uh, not just in the U.S., but in other countries to attract students is something that you need to be focused on. Uh, whom you accept is what is, as we talked about with English proficiency in other areas, these are, these are the things that you, you want to keep in mind. And the final question on who gets the scholarships, how much are we going to, who do we award money to? It's, uh, it's a huge, uh, huge indicator of where a student goes is where they get funding, uh, particularly from the non-elite of every country that might be applying to study outside their home country. They're going to be looking for options that help uh, and institutions that will help defray the costs of education because it's 
it is expensive and prohibitively so for most institutions in the U.S. If you are even a public institution, that uh, total cost per year could be 40000 plus uh, for out-of-state and international students. That's a lot. And if you don't have, because uh, that could be over a four-year period, over $200,000 uh, for an undergraduate education. And if you're not able to defray that even a little bit, uh, you become much less attractive for the middle-class family from uh, India, from China, that uh, uh, can say that they can, they've got a scholarship somewhere else that can help cut their costs by 15, 20% or more. Uh, if you can't do that, then that's, uh, that's you're, you, you, by definition, will be limiting who you can uh, attract to your institution and makes it uh, just another strike against you in terms of trying to compete against uh, uh, other U.S. schools or uh, institutions in other countries where their total cost is uh, far lower than uh, yours would be in at your institution. So those things are, are the really the core questions. I, th I think they're spot on at Inted in terms of nailing that down. Uh, and I think that uh, it's really, really important for uh, institutions that are about to really go down the strategic planning route on wh how are you going to market, who are you going to market to, what are you going to pay, how much you're going to pay uh, for um, how much you're going to attract, uh, be able to commit to uh, to funding funding students. It's it's, it's a real interesting uh, decision there. So, uh, in terms of uh, for for the first person on LinkedIn who's just commented, I can't see my video. I apologize for that. But if you go to uh, our my Twitter feed for SMIE Consulting on uh, Twitter, Twitter slash SMIE Consulting, you should be able to find that link there. Also on our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, this is going live there as well. Uh, sometimes LinkedIn makes it a little difficult, so I'm sorry it's not showing, the video's not showing for you there. Uh, at least you're hearing me, so hopefully that works. But uh, we'll move on to our second question today, and that is, uh, why are China and India having relationship problems? Uh, we've uh, had some news stories recently over the last few months, uh, going back to last year when uh, India was banning all sorts of Chinese apps uh, to uh, not allowing them uh, to be downloaded f for, by people in India. Uh, we really see um, the, we really have we saw a border dispute that led to the deaths of uh, of soldiers on both sides uh, last year as well, uh, and that's something that. Uh, always inflames tensions. Uh, what we have seen in relation to, uh, to, 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 to India and China is that it seems to be a lot of, recently, students, we talked about last week how students are being used as kind of pawns in a political uh, uh, power plays between the two countries. Uh, in addition to all those apps that uh, India has banned in China, uh, you have had the situation for the last two years, more than two years now, where Indian students that had been studying in China uh, who weren't able to get back in before the borders closed uh, have not been able to return to China to finish their programs. I've been doing everything online from mobile devices for the last two years. And there's, they're fed up and they want to get back in. China's been slow to reopen and, and frankly, has done a lot of damage to their uh, to their, their uh their reputation internationally, even though they might have handled uh, the pandemic very well in the early days. What they've been doing lately is, is frankly, 
more damaging than anything they've they've done uh, related to the pandemic uh, in the last two years. They, the lockdowns that have been going on in Shanghai for over five weeks now are just devastating. Uh, there are uh, Americans and other Western teachers at international schools that have um, have had to leave the country, have been evacuated uh, from their countries to other Southeast Asian countries or other or come back home even. Uh, that, that was happening during the pandemic as well for American educators who are working in China at, at schools and universities. Uh, there, so China's really the zero, zero COVID policy has, uh, has, has negatively impacted them and their reputation. Uh, these Indian students who want to get back in aren't able to get back in, and China has refused uh, to until until recently even admitting that they will have conversations about having students return from India. Uh, you've had uh, India kind of um, th uh, threatened last week to revoke uh, tourist visas or business visas for or at least tourist visas for any Chinese coming in, into India. Uh, where they would not be allowed in, and that seems to have moved the conversation. We saw a news story early this week that uh, China would, would consider uh, bringing small groups of Indians back in. But there are 20,000 Indians that have been studying in China and who are not yet being allowed back in. Yet we do have a story uh, in that, that China is now allowing Sri Lankan students to return small groups again. Not, nothing significant or all-inclusive yet from any country. Uh, you've had st uh, had stories as well that we're sharing uh, that um, that uh, other Chinese other other students, foreign students that are in uh, that have been in China that are trying to leave <laughs> haven't been allowed out. Uh, this has happened to a number of Korean students that were studying at Fudan University, one of the top institutions in the country, uh, and other and Koreans at other. Uh, international secondary schools uh, that have not been able to uh, return yet. Uh, I mentioned the Ch Indian, India suspending Chinese tourist visas. That's, uh, again, the political tit-for-tat that's going on. Uh, so it's really kind of, kind of unfortunate that this is all happening uh, as it has uh, over the last, last few years, uh, last two years. And it's been clearly there's some tension uh, between China and India over over borders, over ec economic decisions, over uh, kind of political power plays uh, that uh, India's been trying to, uh, population-wise, they're fairly close to China, but they, uh, they're different. They're the world's largest democracy, uh, uh, one of the world's largest uh, youth populations, uh, as opposed to China that's growing uh, very old very rapidly. Uh, so there, there's some definite ch uh, differences between uh, China and India that are really impacting what's going on. Uh, so you you have to look at uh, what's happening there in um, in the light of what with the pandemic, uh, but also just in uh, the political tension between the two nations, uh, to the 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 powerful most powerful uh, nations in the BRICS group: uh, Brazil, Russia, China, uh, India, China, South. America, South Africa, excuse me, uh, that group uh, is kind of the, after the G7, that's the next biggest block of, uh, of countries uh, in the world scene. And we're seeing some of that play out with uh, Ukraine and Russia, as we talked about. But when it comes to international students, you really see, uh, see, see some, uh, some wrangling going on between China and India, uh, the two biggest senders uh, of uh, international students around the world. 
So I uh, got a question here from a LinkedIn user, uh, which according to you would be recruiting more international students, USA or UK, as US is adding uh, on new restrictions to the visa. Uh, I don't know if they're adding new restrictions to the visas. Uh, I don't know what you're, what you're specifically referring to there. If anything, uh, the restrictions have been lifted uh, and still are being made um, e easier. Uh, to to uh, for for students, uh, we're still in pandemic mode in terms of regulations. In fact, uh, the um, Department of Homeland Security a couple weeks ago announced that uh, the existing uh, pandemic level policy that allowed students uh, to continue to do all online if they were enrolled pre-pandemic, uh, they can continue their studies all online uh, in, from within the United States or back home, and also allowed for. Uh, those that are coming to the U.S., if they're enrolled in at least one in-person class, they can enter the U.S. in F-1 status, uh, in visa status. So the, the rules have actually been uh, kept loose uh, for those students. Uh, I think certainly during the pandemic, the U.K. has come out better uh, in, in terms of the, their numbers and not losing ground over the last two years in terms of in-country students enrolled, international students enrolled. Uh, but uh, volume-wise, the uh, U.S. is still over a million students in the United States, international students in the United States. I think the U.K. just hit 600,000 this past year. Uh, so there's, there, in terms of actual volume, uh, the U.S. is still um, above the U.K. in that respect. But the uh, U.K. is doing really well. They've, um, they've gone all in on China, much like the U.S. did 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and there's, uh, they're seeing, seeing the benefits there. But uh, we'll see. Uh, the China market is going to be, uh, for, for most institutions, is going to be a, the big determinant one there uh, in terms of uh, who, who are the big winners because uh, uh, numbers have been declining from China for the last six or seven years in the, to the U.S. Uh, they're still the number one uh, source of students, but India may challenge that in the next four or five years, um, where India may go above China uh, if they can if if more Indian undergraduates start coming. Indian graduates have always been coming to the United States in significant numbers, mm -hmm. uh, but we we could see more undergrad. We have been seeing more internet Indian undergrads, but I don't think we're getting anywhere near the volume that we had with um, with Chinese undergraduates starting in the mid two thousands. So it's a it's what but your question is a very valid one in terms of shining a light on how competitive uh, the global market is for international students these days. Um, the the pie has gotten a lot bigger, and this is one thing I always tell my university clients uh, when we talk about how, what you need to be focusing on and how you talk about your institution in the global marketplace. Is U.S. back in 2000 had about a 30 percent. Uh, market share of the global globally mobile student market by uh, by 2022 we're 2021 we're down to 20 percent so the U.S. share of the overall international student mobile pie has shrunk but our numbers have doubled in that time from uh, over 500,000 to over a million currently so it's a bigger pie, a much bigger pie. There are over uh, over five million students currently studying outside their home country right now. Uh, U.S. has a, has twenty percent of that pie right now. Uh, there have been other players in addition to the U.K. and Australia that, like Canada, that have come onto the scene like gangbusters, as well as China, as a destination for international students in the last five years, uh, five to ten years. And so you see a much more competitive global marketplace and. 
going back to that first question, are you asking the right questions in your strategic marketing? Are you asking, are you asking how you're going to recruit uh, and how are you going to message uh, to students in particular countries? And how do you reflect your values as an institution, but also your country in relation to other, other, other countries around the world that are going after the, likely the same students? So very, very important question that you ask and uh, one that uh, no real easy answers. Uh, we're all, uh, uh, all, there are more, more U.S. institutions that are actively recruiting now than ever before, uh, and certainly more in the U.S. that are recruiting than there are in India, or excuse me, in Canada, Australia, and the U.K. combined. So just by sheer volume, we're going to be recruiting more international students. So a little bit of a simplistic answer to your question there. So cover both sides there. And the final question of the day, uh, can international ed and environmental responsibility exist together? And this is, this is going to be a theme we're going to be hearing more of. In fact, today, uh, NAFSA launched its two-day international uh, or virtual version of the conference that's going to be happening in Denver later this month. Uh, but they've, they, their virtual program had a session this morning. In fact, it might be going on as we're speaking right now. Uh, on international ed and sustainability, environmental sustainability. So this is a; these are topics that are very much front and center of the of the of the issues these days. And we see on uh, two two articles that I'll be presenting here. Uh, one is um, from the Pi News on uh, international education deeply implicated in the global cr climate crisis. And for those of you that aren't already sub uh, uh, subscribed to uh, the Chronicles Latitudes newsletter uh, that's uh, Karen Fisher has put out uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, the the mo one of the most recent editions from last Wednesday. Uh, the theme was uh, on international sustainability, uh, on international education, and and making it more sustainable. There's uh, an accord called the Climate Action Network for International Educators, CANI. Uh, the Caney Accord. It's a global uh, grassroots nonprofit organization. Uh, it asks signatories to agree to a set of broad principles, and this is from uh, Karen's uh, newsletter. Uh, the signatories agree to a broad set of principles for sustainability and climate action and pledge to take a half a dozen steps of their choosing to combat the climate crisis. So it's, a, it's an interesting take on what um, on uh, the concrete steps they can take, like limiting in-person meetings and airline travel, measuring and setting targets for emission reductions within their institution or office, and uh, adding climate literacy modules to study broad programming. Uh, they can also expand international ed opportunities that involve less travel, uh, including virtual exchanges, better integration of global learning into the curriculum, and offering all or part of a degree program to international students in their home countries. So these are things that some of which have grown out of the pandemic and with everybody being forced to go online, certain countries uh, find out really quickly that uh, doing online is not as easy as they thought it was. Uh, certainly when you consider time differences and price differentials that you should and build into those kinds of programs. But the opportunities are growing and interest is growing, not hugely because uh, some of those initial uh, experiences during the pandemic when everybody was forced to go online weren't the most positive ones. So uh, those, as those have developed, as newer students come into the pipeline that maybe are more open to that and have had these experiences in, in secondary school or in undergraduate studies if they're looking for graduate programs, may be more willing to consider an all online degree or a part online degree. So 
institutions that are looking at these issues now and are setting up uh, things, uh, setting up procedures and policies at their institutions that can address these kinds of issues and, and frankly, be more uh, responsible in their in their travel uh, as institutions. Uh, I think for, for, from, from institutions that I'm working with currently, uh, we're looking at ways that we can minimize uh, international travel. And when, when it is done, it's done for impactful things, truly impactful things uh, for um, beyond just MOU signings, but really establishing uh, formalized programs that are going to be uh, really bilaterally quite, uh, quite successful and sustainable, uh, looking into online options, but also looking at recruitment travel, because a number of my colleagues uh, who are tra- road warriors are, go- are really, this is probably going to be one of the hardest things that they, they have to grapple with in their work in international education and balancing that with environmental sustainability in terms of our impact on the world. Uh, that, uh, that all the trips that we take uh, to, to recruit for three weeks to a month in eight, nine different countries, is that still worth it? A pandemic has certainly thrown up a lot of other hurdles uh, to travel internationally with potential testing and quarantine periods and other factors that may make it more less attractive to begin with. But certainly um, there are some real elements to what we do with tra- recruitment travel that really need to be reexamined in the light of day in terms of when you do go, is it, uh, as some institutions are looking at uh, doing exclusively, their recruitment travel will not be for lead generation anymore. Uh, that they they'll, they'll do virtual fairs uh, that help fill their pipeline quite successfully over the last few last two years from a wider variety of colleges uh, or countries than they might have normally gotten had ever gotten before, uh, and now their their travel focus will be on admitted student events at the tail end of the funnel, uh, or re- alumni receptions for new students that will be coming in the fall. Those are the kinds of things that I think. Um, those that have been more active traveling internationally for recruitment might be forced forced to uh, consider as uh, as new models of how they approach uh, recruitment travel or institutional travel internationally um, and also domestically. Uh, that, there's a lot of lot to say for that. Uh, uh, the, having that personal connection is still going to be important. How you can replicate that virtually, if at all, uh, those are the questions and balancing balancing acts that need to be done in the enrollment process. That. Uh, are there adequate alternatives that we can be exploring as institutions? So we'll take a look at those. Uh, these kinds of questions won't go away. We'll certainly have these again in the coming weeks and months. Uh, certainly appreciate you all being online with us today and hope that uh, in the coming uh, coming few days, hopefully we'll get a chance to reconnect at NAFSA uh, in Denver. I'm looking forward to uh, connecting with many of my uh, many new and old colleagues there. So until next time, wish you the very best, and we'll see you next week. Cheers.